I suspect if I were to ask for a show of hands, I just, I wonder, why is it that so many of us are not living out the dreams we had in childhood? Or much more importantly, even some of the dreams and visions we had for our lives when we reached our late teens and early 20s when we were going through college and had all this time of preparation Why is it that sometimes we aren't living those out or worse yet, we're just kind of muddling along? But sometimes we have dreamed. Sometimes we have planned. We've worked hard and we do everything that we're supposed to do. We try to live by the book and then suddenly, seemingly without warning, one of those many storms comes crashing in on us and everything that we've hoped for, planned for and worked toward and even prayed about comes crashing down around us with a resounding thud. We enter marriage with such high hopes and anticipation only to see a once tender, caring relationship disintegrate either into an ice-cold glacier of just going through the motions or a red-hot fire of all-out warfare. Or the doctor says to us, it's terminal. Your parents say, we're getting divorced. Your father calls with a trembling in his voice and says, it's your mother. She's gone. Your teenage daughter tells you through tears, I'm pregnant. Your boss of many years sits you down and says, I'm really sorry, but we have to let you go. Your bank calls and says, we're foreclosing on your home. The police call and say, there's been a terrible accident. Then that sick, sinking feeling grips your inmost being, and begins to shake you and shake you to your core. I had one of those kinds of moments back in early December of 2008. I was there at my office working, and I received a call from my brother, my older brother's place of employment. He worked for Federal Express in those days. They said, your brother John has collapsed, and they've taken him to the hospital. I knew something was wrong when his place of employment called my place of employment, the church I was at, because they didn't know me. And as myself and my younger brother Paul and my mother all received that same call, we converged on the hospital and arrived about the same time. We were met by the hospital chaplain who simply sat with us, and I knew something was terribly wrong at that point. Usually a pastor can get in to see anybody. We wanted to see our brother. He said, we can't let you in there. And after what seemed to be an eternity, finally the doctor came out and said these words, we did all we could. We couldn't bring him back. He had died of a sudden heart attack in his mid-50s. I was shaken. That storm shook me inside. But see, that was also a storm that was in the middle of other storms that I never would have chosen or predicted. Just a couple years earlier, my eldest brother, Jim, in his mid-50s also had lost his battle with cancer. And then more storms were to follow that. In the year, a year and a half to two following that, my older sister and my mother both lost their battle with cancer within months of each other, passed away. Storms come. Those storms shook me. And when those kind of storms hit, it leaves us asking sometimes those why questions. Why her? Why now? Why me? Why don't things go right? But Jesus makes some powerful promises, two very specific promises in this past passage we're considering in Matthew's gospel that will help us understand how to weather and come through standing strong in the very storms of life. I am convinced 
that these four verses in Matthew's gospel hold the key to building healthy, stable, and fulfilling lives for us. And they hold the secret to maintaining these even under the most challenging circumstances. Now Jesus starts this passage, verse 24, by saying, everyone who does what he says is eligible and will experience here and now a radically more positive kind of life that is characterized by an immovable confidence, an unshakable strength, and an unstoppable future. That everyone includes you today. This will work for you. Jesus excludes no one. No matter how many times you've tried and failed, no matter if you've made a complete mess of your life, whether you're young or old, whatever you define that as, or in between, women, men, or children are all included. You could be single, you could be married, divorced, remarried, or widowed. It doesn't matter if you have a doctoral degree or if you're a high school dropout. No matter if you've had the entire Bible memorized cover to cover or if you're just beginning or even considering a journey of faith. Your IQ doesn't matter, nor does your social standing. And it doesn't matter if your net worth is in the millions or if you're even on the verge of bankruptcy. Your physical appearance nor capabilities have nothing to do with this. It applies to you if you always feel like everyone else gets the breaks or is luckier than you or if Murphy's Law seemed to have been written with you personally in mind. A solid, stable, emotionally and relationally healthy life is within your reach today. And it is God's desire that you would have it and experience it. You see, I believe Jesus' instruction on the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, just those short chapters, is the blueprint that God is giving us for building a rock-solid life that can withstand anything that will be thrown at us in this life. Jesus not only tells us what to do, he tells us how to do it, and then he says, I will help you with every step that you take. I believe our lives begin to change for the better dramatically and significantly as we begin to actively put into practice the instructions of Jesus. Just some of the topics he covers in the Sermon on the Mount are these. He'll teach us how to manage our emotions effectively and experience the true freedom to be able to love and be loved. He shows us how to overcome addictive and obsessive behaviors. He shows us how to deal with difficult, offensive, and even abusive people in our lives. He teaches us how to pray and to develop a deeply meaningful prayer life with God. He teaches us how to properly view and handle and manage all the resources that he has given to us in life and manage them well. He teaches how to cure us ourselves of negative and critical attitudes towards others. He shows us how to come out on top even when your enemies curse you, mock you, slander you, and say all kinds of things behind your back. He even shows us how to divorce-proof our marriage and much more. Some of you are sitting here saying, hey, that sounds great. Where do I sign up? The promise is sure, but the path is not simple. The promise is rock solid, but I did not say it was easy or didn't take effort. Jesus, in fact, says those who are wise builders listen to what he says, and then immediately there's a direct connection between beginning to put those things into real-life practice on a regular basis. Karl Barth put these 
words together which encouraged my soul. He said, though no one can go back and make a brand new beginning, anyone can start today and make a brand new ending. I suspect if you're like me, you probably would like to get a couple mulligans in life. A mulligan, for those who aren't golfers, means when you hit the ball into the lake, into the sand, or into the trees off the tee, you get to hit another shot and try to get it in the fairway. You know, I hit a lot of mulligans, okay? I ask for them. I need a lot of mercy. I'm not such a great golfer. All of us have unstable structures built on sand that really need to be torn down and make room for those better ones that God wants to build. Now, not long after my family moved here into the Oak Brook area in Ginger Creek in 1967, my younger brother Paul and I set out to build a fort for ourselves. It was wide open spaces, a lot of empty lots here. In fact, there was a dairy farm right on 31st. How many remember the dairy farm? It used to be right down the street. It's called uh, Trinity Lakes now. Um, a lot of wide open spaces, a lot of construction going on, so a lot of material, scrap wood and such. So my brother Paul and I built ourselves a fort. Now, this was no ordinary fort. This was a three-room chalet complete with a basement. We'd excavated a huge hole under that thing, and, and we had a great... The problem with it, it was situated front and center on a beautiful lot in Ginger Creek. Now, it wasn't long before the Ginger Creek Community Association wrote my parents uh, a letter. Uh, It wasn't a welcome to the community letter. It was something along the lines of, please immediately remove the unsightly playhouse from lot 137. I guess it wasn't in keeping with Oak Brook standards somehow. It wasn't going to help them sell that lot. But what Jesus is showing us in this passage is how to become wise builders. And I suspect some of us have some unsightly playhouses that we have built in our lives out of scrap wood and whatever we could find to build them and replace them with Jesus' help, building a solid structure with bricks made out of gold that will last not only in this life, bringing stability, but last all the way into eternity. He makes a clear reference. There's a distinction between the wise and foolish builder. You see, he's speaking, all of these people are believers. They're all listening to Jesus' teaching. All of them are churchgoers. They're hearing sermons. They're reading their Bibles. They're listening to teachings. They're reading books. They're going to seminars. They're all doing the same things that appear right. They're both hearing the words of Jesus. But the crucial distinction is one group of them carefully considers what he's saying and sees this is a direction for my life that I need to put into practice. And the other simply logs it in their knowledge base, saying, I've got that down. The sad thing is, that's the reason why the crashing down of those houses built on sand is so devastating. Because they are well-meaning people. They are church-going. They are Bible-reading. And unfortunately, they've not made that connection fully that what he says is something that we need to do and do quickly. William Barclay put it so well when he said these words, there is nothing more dangerous than the repeated experience of a fine emotion with no attempt to put it into action. It is a fact that every time a man or person feels a noble impulse without taking action, he becomes less likely to ever take action. Wow, how true that is. The Holy Spirit day by day, is encouraging us in the right direction. He's been given to us to be our guide, to be our counselor, to be our encourager, to point us to Jesus, to point us in the direction God wants us to go. He's giving us those noble impulses. And if we don't act on them, we can be drowning out the very voice of his presence within us. I believe the only way we really discover and know where we're at 
and our spiritual development is when we actually begin to apply or put into practice the directions of Jesus. It's at that moment that we really get humbled. It's at that moment that we really recognize we are poor in spirit. We really can't do this without his help. We really can't live out our lives without his special grace. And let me make one very important observation here. We are saved by grace through faith, and that is not of ourselves, Ephesians tells us. Jesus is not talking about salvation here, however. He's talking about transformation, the process of saved people like us moving from where we were into the image of Jesus. And that process of transformation is not a momentary event that happens on one day. It's a lifelong journey. And the Sermon on the Mount is such a powerful passage of Scripture. If you see the whole Bible, the whole of it being an instruction book for our lives, it teaches us about God, how to live in, in concert with him, how to worship him, how to pray and how to live our lives, then the Sermon on the Mount is that quick start guide. And I don't know if you're like me. When you open a new package or some new product you bring home, you pull out a manual that's about how to put it together. It's about 100 pages long. I put that aside and look for the quick start guide, that little folder that has like pictures on it, like this is how you do this. Plug in here and push this button. I like that. The Sermon on the Mount is that. It is the basic instructions for living life in Christ. Psychiatrist Dr. James Tucker Fisher closed his book, A Few Buttons Missing, with this revealing discovery he had. He says this, I dreamed of writing a handbook that would be simple, practical, easy to understand, and easy to follow. It would tell people how to live, what thoughts and attitudes and philosophies to cultivate, and what pitfalls to avoid in seeking mental health. I attended every symposium possible, and took notes on the wise words of teachers and my colleagues who were leaders in the field. And then, quite by accident, I discovered that such a work had already been completed. If you were to take the sum total of all the authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount and it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. So these short chapters are powerful. Even in the eyes of a a noted psychologist, he saw them as being that kind of power. But I think there are four major ways we're going to look at here today that we can fail to avail ourselves fully or fail to experience that solid living Jesus promises to us. First of those is I do believe we so often ignore warnings. We ignore his clear and plain warnings in, in these chapters and really throughout the scriptures, and then we suffer the consequences. Secondly, we fail to read and follow the instructions. Now, how many of you guys, when you're putting something together, actually read the instructions before you start? Be honest. I don't see any hands. There's one. There's one guy out of uh, all this whole couple of, couple of you. We just want to take a crack at it ourselves, don't we? We can do this. I can look at the picture and get... Well, our lives are too important to God, to our families, and to this world that God has put us in for us not to follow instructions. So when we fail to follow them, we're missing out. Thirdly, we can become content and complacent. We make some progress, we come to Christ, we start learning, our lives change, we're better people, and we kind of settle at one level. And fourthly, we can become discouraged. You say, I've tried it all and nothing seems to work for me. 
But friends, we're going to look at each of those and see how we can break through and grow past them. First of all, ignoring warnings. It's become pretty commonplace nowadays, hasn't it? There's warnings on everything, and with a litigious society like we're in, there's sometimes some pretty ridiculous warnings that we look at, so we tend to start ignoring them. Take a look at the window at some products that have warnings. of. This is a big jar of peanuts. And if you look closely at the small print, it says, Warning, contains peanuts. I think you know that by the time you bought this thing. This next one, and don't try to dry your pet in the microwave. I mean, that's just, do we really need that kind of warning? This next one is, should be obvious, do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. I mean, that's an actual warning. I mean, is anybody really going to, you only do that once if you did it. This one, do not put firecrackers in your mouth. They're flammable. Uh, please, don't ever do that. This one, don't jump into a barrel of toxic waste. And in the fine print, it says there may cause adverse health effects. Well, you see the skull and the bone in there? I think you probably don't want to do this. This last one's my favorite. This is a prescription for a dog named Parker, and it's from his vet. Vet, vet gave him this, take one pill, pill a day. And it says in the yellow, orange part, you can't read there, it says, this may cause drowsiness, and alcohol will intensify this effect. So... <laughs> Don't operate a car or heavy machinery. Well, I think you got more problems if your dog is liquoring up and hopping in the family car. I mean, you're, 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 in, you're in real trouble. We've become so accustomed to ignoring warnings that we don't even notice them anymore. But every single one of Jesus' words of truth and warning are just that. They're truth. And they apply to all of us. And his aim is always for our best interests and our welfare. The danger is that the real warning sometimes can get missed. And then we suffer consequence, unnecessary consequences. A while back, the Asia edition of the New York Times reported that along the northeast coast of Japan, on the mountainsides, there are hundreds of ancient stone markers. Some of these are very old, dating back up to 700 years. And on these markers are engravings. They're warnings about the threat of a tsunami, other warning them not to build their homes lower than these stones on the mountainside to prevent them from being destroyed by tidal waves. But as Japan advanced technologically, they ignored these ancient warnings and built huge cities and elaborate communities right along that very coast because they felt safe. Well, two years ago in March, as we all know, they discovered how wrong they were when the tsunami came crashing into shore with 125-foot waves. Whole villages and towns were destroyed the death toll was over 20,000 people from this natural disaster. Japan, as a nation, was shaken to its core. Japan learned the hard way that time-tested warnings and wisdom need to be heeded. However, there were several villages who heeded those simple stones and built their towns above them. All of them survived entirely intact, unscathed by the storm. In this life, we never know exactly when the next big storm is going to come. We simply can't predict what is going to happen to us, but sooner or later, a tidal wave is going to come onto the shore of our life. None of us, no matter how hard we try, can avoid the storms of life. And Jesus never promised we'd be exempt. He simply said he would build in us a strength that helps us endure. So let's take a look at a couple of the warnings out of this passage that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount that he's referencing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22 says this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see, Jesus goes right back to one of the Ten Commandments. And he says, murder is wrong. And then he ratchets it up to, we can be killing people with our words. And says, if we're doing that, we're in danger of judgment. You see, he begins where most of us live, though, doesn't he? Most of our base emotions around anger and frustration with people around us. This is the first part of what I call the deadly trilogy. There's three paragraphs in a row in Matthew chapter 5 I call that deadly trilogy. starts with the management of our anger. He instructs us on the absolute of importance of recognizing and learning to manage our own emotions. seems to me when I was growing up, going through kindergarten and first grade and grade school and even high school, I got a lot of instruction in reading and writing and algebra and those kind of things, teaching me how to speak, teaching me how to write, teaching me how to do logic, but there wasn't a whole lot of instruction on how to manage the emotions. I don't know if you remember that. We were told to behave, conform, but never really told how to tame our emotions. So Jesus starts at the very beginning to help us build or rebuild our inner structures to enable us to be those unshakable people he promised. He knew very well that this world is full of sinful, flawed humans who are modeling all kinds of unhealthy ways to handle their emotions. And that ranges from rage, on one hand, which is uncontrolled anger. It's violent, it's abusive, it's hurtful at every level. And season it up with a little bit of vengeance and retaliation, and you got a mess. On the other end of the spectrum, there's resentment, which is to feel a whole lot, but choose not to express it to bury it, to internalize it, and freeze out the other person out of our lives as a means of protecting ourselves or even getting back at the other person. But Jesus unpacks these three most common ways of handling anger in this passage. He simply says, if you're angry and don't resolve it or seek to resolve it, you're heading down the road to trouble, and that trouble is in your own heart. The word for anger Jesus chooses is orgizo in the Greek, which simply means to be enraged or quick-tempered, or having a wrathful impulse, or even touchy. We might say if you stay angry and don't let it go. All of us get angry about things. Anger is a God-given, God-created response in us to injustice. Jesus will never advocate turning off the anger nerve, if you will. In fact, he will teach us, and the scripture teach us to use that anger for constructive action, to change things that are wrong. People that are being abused, People are being taken advantage of. People that cannot fend for themselves to use that anger and do something constructive with it. But this is an anger that's just stirring like a cauldron inside of us. And the second thing he mentions then, he says, if we leave that anger unresolved and then we express it to somebody verbally and insult them by bringing into question their basic dignity, which is what the word raka means. It means calling somebody good for nothing or worthless. We're in danger ourselves. And the third stage of this unmanaged anger is that we write someone off as hopelessly derelict, not worth our time, that we simply say, you fool, diminishing a God-created person in the image of God to something less than that. We've now violated a major line with God, and we're in God's doghouse. He says you're in danger of the fire of hell. 
As I said, anger is not a wrong emotion. It's what we do with it. And Paul the Apostle helps us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, where he says this, In your anger, like anger is normal, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. In verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So what the scripture teaches us to do is to put a filter on our words, to be very and become very aware of our internal temperature gauge. You know what that is. Start to recognize when you're getting close to overheating so that you don't boil over. And walk away before you say things that will hurt someone else. Talk to God first about the whole thing. Ask for his counsel. Engage him and ask him, how do you want me to respond, Lord? That can happen in a second's prayer. Oh, I'm sure he'll tell you something he said in the very Sermon on the Mount. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Oh, oh, I guess I shouldn't say all that stuff I was thinking about then, huh? Mm Mm-mm. Never let anger last more than one day of this kind. We've got a few hours left in this day, about seven, eight hours till sundown. Paul gives us that clear that don't let your head hit the pillow any day of your life still upset and angry. Either diffuse it, deal with it, take positive action or make plans to do so, or let it go. Because anger of that kind doesn't just go away. And the next time that person says something to you or does something to you, it stirs the pot a little bit further and that causes us to boil over. And then we're in that difficult place. But Jesus gives the cure. The next couple of verses give us the cure. If we've used our words to injure somebody, here's the cure. He says, Jesus says them to them uh, in this passage, he says, if you're offering your altar, you're at the temple offering your altar, at, offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar first and then go and be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus says if you're sitting at church on Sunday or Wednesday night or Friday night or whatever day you're there in a place of worship, and there you're reminded that there's somebody that you have actually offended, you have actually said something or done something that you kind of feel bad about. He does not instruct us to go out to talk to every person that's angry with us in this world. There's a lot of angry people. He doesn't tell us to do that. He says, if you know that you've done something that you wish you hadn't done or said, go now, convert what were once angry, harmful words and use your words to heal. Go to the person and say, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I might have felt that at the time, but that's not how I feel about you. That's a word that builds someone up. Those are words that bring healing. Those are words that are the kind of words Jesus would encourage us to take. Secondly, though, that we can miss the mark sometimes, that we recognize that we've done a lot of those kind of things, how do we ever find our way back? Because it's been said it's easier to build up a child than it is to repair an adult. So choose your words wisely. Sometimes if we've left a trail of wreckage verbally behind us, we need to do some honest soul searching and maybe it's not just one relationship we need to reconcile. We need to reconcile a bunch of them and we need to make a plan to do that. That would be Jesus' will to cleanse us, heal those people and use our words in a powerful way. But Jesus also knows for us to become world changers that he's called us to be that 
we must be released from the crippling effect of our own internal turmoil. And that's one way we do that. The second thing I think we do is we ignore the instructions he gives us, and this is just one of them. Back in 1804, Thomas Jefferson, then president on January 20th, you probably heard of this in your history books or somewhere else, he ordered two books from a Philadelphia bookseller. They were both King James versions of the Bible. When they arrived at the White House, Jefferson sat down amidst all of his duties as presidents and spent several nights with a razor in his hand and turned to the Gospels and began to cut them apart. He ended up reconstructing the gospel narrative of Jesus' life, and this became known as the Jefferson Bible. But when he was done, only about one-tenth of the original content remained. All of the rest was left on the White House floor, including any reference to the divinity of Christ, all the miracles or claims to be, to, uh, to be the Messiah, and any of the commands that he didn't like. What Thomas Jefferson did was create a Bible and a Jesus that he was comfortable with. Amazingly, even after doing this, he still considered himself a Christ follower. But he was following the Christ he wanted, not the real one. Now, we can stand in judgment of Jefferson, but if we're not careful, we can do the same thing, can't we? I highly doubt that any of you have ever taken a pair of scissors to your family Bible or to your, the Bible you carry to church with you, but when we skip over or ignore plain instructions of Jesus, we're effectively doing the same thing. We need to be careful not just to follow some of his instructions, but all of them. Now, many of you bake or cook, and how many of you ever did a recipe and left out half the, uh, made a recipe and left out half of the ingredients? Ever tried that? I suspect it probably didn't come out exactly right. All those ingredients are listed in those great cookbooks we have because they're meant to make something special. All of Jesus' instructions are important. We need to slow down, look at them, consider them one at a time, and begin applying them to our life. It's been said, the first to apologize is the bravest. The first to forgive is the strongest. And the first to forget is the happiest. I do believe that's true. Not heeding the directions of Jesus or taking and applying into our lives the things that he said is akin to Going to your doctor, getting a prescription for something that's 100% curable with medicine, going down to Walgreens, getting the prescription filled, coming home, putting out the pills on two little napkins, one for bedtime, one for the morning, putting a glass of water out there, even leaving a note on your mirror, take your medicine, and then simply not taking the medicine. You won't be cured. I think, and I fear we do that with the scriptures so often, we do everything right except the most important thing take the medicine and jesus words are that medicine for everything in our lives and they'll bring a cure they'll bring a healing they'll bring direction and they'll bring strength if we will take that medicine now the second step down in this deadly trilogy that i have referenced is the next couple of verses where jesus says anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart, has already committed adultery with her. Now, adultery is another one of the Ten Commandments, which also, like murder, was a capital offense. This was serious business. And he ratchets it up to say simply, if you're just looking now and thinking about committing adultery, it's the equivalent of doing it. Now, make no mistake about it. There's a direct connection between unresolved anger and lust. Psychologists have proven this over and over again, and the actions that follow from that. 
We talk a lot about the astounding epidemic and addiction to pornography in our culture today, and there's also an amazingly prevalent acceptance of extramarital affairs because angry and hurt people somehow feel justified by stepping out of their marriages and doing things even that they know are wrong. Why do people do that? Because I believe underneath all that hurt and pain is a tender soul who wants to be loved, wants to be with someone who wants to be with them. Friends, adultery is a serious sin in God's book. But God, through Jesus, gives us the cure for this kind of lust. He tells us, take immediate action. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So take action. Address the problem as soon as you recognize it. Stop turning your head and looking at every person who attracts you. Turn off your internet provider if needed. Cut your cancel or cancel your cable TV. Get an accountability partner. See an addictions counselor if needed. Talk to a pastor. Stop texting or calling your coworker, your old high school sweetheart. Defriend your old friend on Facebook that you're just keeping in touch with. See, Jesus instructs us to get control of our emotions and manage them properly, take control of our passions, and that will prevent the last step down of this trilogy, which is divorce. He knew that people who weren't managing their emotions and weren't managing their passions were inevitably going to fall into that trap of breaking the covenant of marriage more often than not. So Jesus says, divorce is not acceptable unless your spouse or your partner has committed adultery against you. Friends, we need to reinvent and reinvest in our marriages. We need to get and learn some conflict resolution skills, especially in our marriages. We need to learn to use those simple words, I'm sorry, a lot. And for those of us that might feel like we've got everything under control, our emotions are under control, we keep our passions in check, we got things pretty together, Jesus ratchets it up a few notches in verse 43 where he says this in chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Whoa. Love my enemies? Pray for people that are hurting me? Whoa, that's a whole new standard. Frederick Buechner captures this and really is instructional in his book, The Magnificent Defeat, where he says, the love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother, it is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks you, threatens, and even inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love, and it conquers the world. Growing into this kind of high call requires a continual dependence on God for his help. We all have a long way to go in that journey. As we move to a close today, may I suggest a path forward for us? In Brian Tracy's little book called Focal Point, in the early uh, pages of that, he tells us this. Each of us ultimately has four choices in life. These are basically the only choices we have. We can choose to do more of certain things. 
We can choose to do less of certain things. We can choose to stop doing old things. And we can start doing new things. Well, Jesus calls us to all four of these choices in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. And today I'm encouraging and inviting you to take those four uh, uh, directions as a template for how you read the Scriptures. And over the next 90 days or so, I encourage you to just on a piece of paper, in your notebook, in the notes in your Bible, to every time you see Jesus say something, I need to be doing more of that. I need to be doing less of that. I need to stop doing that. Or I need to start doing that. What will happen is eventually, as we build these things into our lives and apply them, we'll begin to change. So let's first do more. Let's do more of applying Jesus' directions and admitting when we're wrong. Let's do less being critical and judgmental of others and less letting our anger and emotions get out of control. Third, let's stop lashing out in that anger and verbally assaulting our spouses and our children and others around us. Let's stop leaving anger unresolved. Let's stop letting lustful, sinful thoughts remain in our minds. Let's stop seeing divorce divorce as our only option. Stop trying to get even and settle the score. Let's stop hating people who are different than us. And let's start using our words to build others up around us every single day. Let's start loving and praying even for our enemies and those that abuse or attack us. Let's start putting God absolutely first in everything. And let's start serving God over money and start acting like the sons and daughters of the King of Kings that we are. Why does this matter? Because you matter. You are a unique person that God created for a divine purpose. Everything you do in your life matters both to God and to those around you. So hear these encouragements, friends. As you begin to do this, you can be positive when the whole world around you is sinking in doubt and negativity. You can be in control when everyone is letting go and careening recklessly through their lives. Friends, let's be compassionate when the love of many has grown so very cold. Let's be considerate when everyone else just thinks about themselves. Let's be bold when everyone is cringing in fear. Let's be brave when the weak hide in cowardice. Let's be deep when everything is so shallow. Let's be teachable when we're surrounded by know-it-alls. Let's be flexible in facing vapid rigidity. Let's be merciful when everyone wants to condemn someone. Let's be strong as the incessant bad news makes the world's knees so weak. And let's be sensitive when all the pain has made hearts hard and calloused. Let's be a peacemaker when everyone wants to fight. And friends, as Jesus calls us, let's be perfect as the God who calls us is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this day for your great grace that has brought us into relationship with you. Lord, we ask you that day by day we will see the progress that you desire to build into us until we have found that ultimate destination of being in the very image of Jesus, which is where you're taking all of us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.